Father in heaven, you clothe us with royal robes that we don't deserve through your son Jesus. Help us to remember that this morning and to glory in you. Amen. 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 Well, I want to tell you uh, just a little story. In, in, in 1562, um, one of the last great Protestant reformers, Theodore of Beza, had an opportunity to speak to the king of southern France. Now, the, now the king of southern France, he, he was hostile to them. He had actually just persecuted the Protestants in a bloody, violent way. Um, but Beza, uh, when he was given the chance to speak, he spoke with boldness and eloquence. This is what he said. He said, Sire, it is in truth the lot of the church of God, in whose name I, in whose name I am speaking, to endure blows and not to strike them. But also, may it please you to remember that the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. The church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. Amen? Amen. I think we see this truth on display here in Acts chapter 12. It begins with King Herod's efforts to persecute the church. And in many ways, he succeeds. But then by the end of the passage, by the end of the chapter, somehow, Herod, this narcissistic king, is eaten by worms. And actually, the great Jewish historian Josephus um, says the same thing. He has a very similar story about what happened to Herod Agrippa I. And meanwhile, verse 24 says that the word of God increased and multiplied. Now, how did it go down this way? How did violent persecution turn into missionary expansion? Well, the story unfolds for us throughout Acts 12. And along the way, there are two important lessons we learn. So first, we learn something about suffering. And then second, we learn something about the power of prayer. These are good themes, I think, for the season of Lent. Amen? Amen. Would you turn there with me to Acts chapter 12? It's on page 920 of your pew Bible. Page 920, we're going to learn something about suffering and something about the power of prayer. So first, something about suffering. And the situation is set up for us in this passage in verses 1 through 4. It says, about that time, Herod the king, now I mentioned this before, this is Herod Agrippa I, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, it's important to remember that the Herods in the New Testament were not actually Jewish by ethnicity. And they really had no biblical right to be kings. They were, um, you know, they, they would oftentimes try to appear more Jewish than they were for political reasons. But essentially, they were foreign aristocrats who were placed over the Jewish people by Rome. And Herod Agrippa's birth name was actually Marcus Julius Agrippa. That doesn't sound very Jewish to me. But he was the grandson of Herod the Great. And you remember Herod the Great? That was the one who was ruling when Jesus was born. And when he found out that, the king, that a king, that the king of Israel, the true king of Israel had been born, remember he's the one who gave the order that all male babies under the age of two be slaughtered. So that's the kind of guys that these Herods were. And we see that Herod Agrippa the first here is also a violent man. It says in verse 2 that Herod killed James, the brother of Jesus, with the sword. He beheaded James, 
And this was a big deal. James, the son of Zebedee, was the first of the original 12 apostles to be martyred. He was the older brother of the apostle John. And along with Peter, James was a part of Jesus' sort of inner circle. Do you remember that? Jesus had a 12, but he also had three that came with him and saw special things that none of the other 12 even, even saw, right? So when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, only three were there. It was Peter, James, and John. When Jesus rose the little girl from, de uh, from, uh, from death, um, only those three were in there with him, praying with him. So there are certain things that they saw. So James, he was, he was uh, you know, the brother of the apostle John, uh, and James was this important leader in the early church, and he was much beloved by Jesus. But I think that should lead us to ask the question, if Jesus loved James so much, why would he let a scoundrel like Herod kill him? Why would he allow that to happen? And perhaps even more confusing, why would he allow James to be killed and then a few days later miraculously deliver Peter? Right? So James dies, and then God miraculously, by angelic power, by all sorts of miracles, delivers Peter from the same fate. Reflecting on his own life, an old British pastor named George Morgan had this to say about Acts 12. He said, there is no answer to these questions. He says, I have also seen James slain when I thought we could not spare him. I also have seen a man full of fire and enthusiasm and force removed swiftly and suddenly by way of pain. And I have said, what is God doing? But he goes on to say, if God can deliver Peter, that means he could have delivered James. And he says, there is infinite comfort in that. The comfort of the revelation of the fact that the one who could deliver Peter in his wisdom was equally wise when he did not deliver James. Morgan concludes by saying, life can never be perfectly understood in the process of its living. We must wait just beyond the gleam and flash of the sword and the overwhelming agony of the moment. James comes to the explanation. God doeth all things well. And here I think the old pastor gets it right. These questions, as Job himself would find out, must be left in the hands of an infinitely wise God. It's, it's only faith that continues to believe in his ultimate goodness without knowing the answers. The victorious dead know the answer. James knew the answer. But Peter was left to wait. John was left to wait. And I wonder if Peter ever felt guilty that his old fishing buddy was dead and he was alive. I wonder if like when Peter was talking to James, uh, talking to John, James's younger brother, and he just looked at him, if he ever just kind of felt like, I don't know why his brother died and I'm still here today. Maybe God made the wrong choice. Maybe God saved the wrong guy. Most of you have probably heard of the mental condition called survival, su excuse me, survivor's guilt. It occurs when a person believes they've done something wrong by surviving a traumatic event when others did not. We heard a lot about this following 
or sometimes you hear soldiers talk about it, or even when people are the victims of a violent crime. Survivor, excuse me, survivor's guilt is a real thing. It's actually a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, why am I going through all this? Because I think it's very important for us to remember when we read Scripture that these are real stories about real people, guys. And what might, might sound like, like a neat, heroic story to us was no doubt at the time intensely stressful. It was a time of pressure for these early Christians. The disciples, they were humans just like we are. They had the same psychological makeup. Things affected them in the same kinds of ways. They didn't want to suffer. But they did suffer. And more than most. You might remember that in his younger years, Jesus had mysteriously revealed to James that he would lay down his life for the gospel. Let's look at that together. Turn with me to Mark 10, 35. It's on page 846 of your pew Bible. You might remember this story. This is when James was just a young buck. And it says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And I just love the audacity of that request. Just, let's, just, let's just be real. <laughs> Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask you. And he said to them, what do you want for me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So remember, they were looking for worldly glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. They didn't know that sticking with Jesus would also lead to Calvary. So Jesus asks, are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And he was, of course, talking about the baptism of death, the baptism of suffering. And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> it's, again, very presumptuous. Probably what a lot of our prayers sound like to God sometimes. It's okay, we can still go to him. And then Jesus responds in a way that probably would have sounded very mysterious at the time he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism, the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And then the other disciples get mad at James and John, not surprisingly, for asking uh, to sit at Jesus' right and left, the place of privilege and glory. And Jesus tells all the disciples in this verse, verse 42, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. So he explains that the way that power and authority is leveraged and exercised is different for the new covenant community than it is for the world. It says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that Jesus was. The king who would die as a ransom for many. 
And so following a crucified king is always going to involve suffering. Both then and now. Brothers and sisters, we have to get this clear in our mind because there's another teaching out there called the prosperity gospel. Right? And it says, if you only have enough faith, nothing bad will ever happen to you. You'll never get sick. You'll never have somebody who's close to you die. You'll never have somebody that's close to you walk away from the Lord. You'll never have a bad day. And this is false. It's a lie. A very dangerous lie. Because if we buy into it, then we'll always feel like Christianity isn't working for us like it's supposed to. And God must not be good. Maybe we'll give up on a ministry because it gets difficult. And we don't think that that's the way that it should be. Maybe we'll stop going to church because life has gotten hard. Maybe we'll quit on a marriage because we don't have that feeling anymore. But that is not biblical Christianity. This is not what it looks like to follow a crucified king. Do you know that based on his letters, as best we can see, Paul appears. Paul, Paul, who God used to heal so many people, appears to have had an ongoing eye disease that he couldn't be cured of. The Apostle John's brother was murdered. And we should remember that even Peter, who was rescued here, just a few, few years later, was eventually crucified upside down. Jesus had told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And so the difference for the Christian is not that we don't suffer, it's that we have God in our lives. That's the difference. We know we're not alone. We know we have his spirit. We know we have his people. If we're Christians, we have the peace of God which passes all understanding. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we have the hope of eternal life. That must have been different for John to lose James with the hope of eternal life. Amen? And we trust also that God... The just judge will one day set all things right, either in this life, as he does with Herod, or in the age to come, as he did with James. And in the meantime, I love how in the New Testament we see that God has mercy on James's little brother, John. Because near the end of John's life, um, when he's receiving revelation on the island of Patmos, Revelation 20, verse 4... He receives this vision from God, and here's what it says, Revelation 24. He says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Wow, people who had been given great authority by God. He said, And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. You better believe he saw James among them. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, for they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This was a tangible reminder for John that his brother, 
who received dishonor in this life would receive eternal honor in the presence of God. So that's the first thing we learn from this passage, something about suffering. You can expect it when you worship a crucified God. But just because we're being realistic about suffering, that doesn't mean that God has actually left us powerless in this life. And according to this passage, we've been given access to great power. And this brings me to point number two, that this passage teaches us something about the power of prayer. Look back with me at Acts 12, if you would. So Herod has James put to death by beheading, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, so you see how these these kings, these people who think they're so powerful, are actually being led around by the whim of the people, by the whim of the crowds. When it pleased the Jews living in Jerusalem, he makes plans to do the same to Peter. But in verses 3 and 4, it explains he has to wait because he arrested Peter during the days of the unleavened bread, and it was unlawful to put somebody to death during those days. And uh, when we come to verse 5, which is easy to skip past, this is actually a really easy verse to skip past, but I think it might be the most important verse in this whole passage. Um, because it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him, was made, excuse me, was made to God by the church. So I don't know if you caught that when that passage was first read. Earnest prayer was made for the church. Now you might call it a coincidence, but I believe that everything else that happens in this passage the angelic activity, the chains falling off, doors miraculously swinging open, and even the justice that's later delved out to Herod. I believe that everything that happens in this passage happens in response to God's church praying. That's the power of a praying church, guys. Through prayer, God is able to make a way when there's no way. I love how the odds seem to be stacked against Peter, and it doesn't even matter. Right? In verse 6, it's the eve of his execution, so he's only got a few hours to live. He's bound by two chains with a guard on both sides and additional sentries out the door. I mean, that's a pretty bleak situation. And James had just been killed a few days before. That's pretty bleak. But the funny thing is, is that it says that Peter was sleeping. Now, I'd like to have that kind of peace, wouldn't you? <laughs> He's going to die in a few hours. It looks like there's no hope, and he's just like snoozing away. It reminds me of the time that the disciples were caught in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and their master Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. And they wake him up, and they're like, Lord, what are you doing? We're dying here. And Jesus says, where is your faith? And it seems like Peter has come a long way since then. Amen? In fact, Peter is so out of it, that it seems like he needs to be rescued in this passage despite, in spite of himself. Right? Sometimes we need that, amen? Sometimes we need to just be rescued in spite of ourselves. Verse 12 says that when he realized this, I love the NRSV translation, it says, when this had dawned on him, <laughs> when it dawned on him that he was truly rescued, it says, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where they were gathered. I'm going to do something that African-American preachers commonly do. And say, turn to your neighbor and say, many were gathered. Many were gathered. Turn to your neighbor and say, many were gathered. Many were gathered. 
many were gathered together and were praying. So there it is again. At the very moment that Peter was rescued, even though it looked like no, there was no hope, what were God's people doing? They were gathering together in each other's houses and praying. They were praying for God to miraculously heal him, for him to miraculously deliver him. Now I wonder what it is in your life that just seems so hopeless that you're tempted to even give up praying about it. Maybe you want to get married. Or maybe it's deliverance from some addictive sin. Or maybe it's some loved one who doesn't know Jesus and it seems like they'll never know him. And maybe you think the odds are stacked up too high for God to answer that that prayer. Well, the odds were stacked up pretty high against Peter here, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Can I tell you something that I truly believe, guys? I believe that God has something miraculous that he wants to do through this church if we will only gather together and pray. I truly believe that. If many will gather in this church to pray, God will do miraculous things through us. And I believe actually one of the reasons why he brought us to this building, one of the reasons he brought us in relationship with Family Worship and Praise Center is that he wants them to teach us something about prayer. I don't know if you know this, but this congregation, the congregation who owns this building, they gather on the first Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of every month at like 5 a.m. to pray. Maybe it's 4.30, I can't remember, but it's, it's an ungodly hour. <laughs> so they gather early to pray. I heard like 75 people show up sometimes. Well, what if we join them next month? Seriously, I think the next days are March 5th, 6th, and 7th. And I asked Pastor Quincy already, and he said, we're welcome to join them. And I just long to see what would happen if many were gathered together from incarnation to consistently pray to the Lord. Now, one of you guys might be saying, well, miraculous stuff happened when the early church prayed, but look at the faith they have. Or, or, Or like Family Worship and Praise Center, we don't have the faith like they have. Well, that may be true, but look with me at verse 13. Here's the encouraging thing. At least it's encouraging to me. Because here the church is praying for Peter, and when he finally shows up, they don't even believe it. (laughs) They were asking God to do it, and when he finally shows up, they don't even believe it. Verse 13 says, And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Notice that just like in Jesus' resurrection, it's a young lady who is the first to see that Peter's alive. And he delivers the message... She delivers the message, excuse me, and they don't believe her, right? So verse 14, this is a hilarious verse. It says, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran and reported that, Peter, that, uh, reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So this jailbird is just left standing out in the streets. <laughs> verse 15, the church said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Now, does the faith of the early church sound that different from your own? I mean, have you ever prayed for something that seemed impossible, and then when God answered your prayer, you were like, what? Yes. (laughs) I mean, man, I've had that experience. I'm sure you have. So 
So I don't, I don't really think that the, that the faith of the early church was that different from our own. It was just a mustard seed, guys. Maybe the only difference is that they had faith enough to at least gather to pray. Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, well, didn't they pray for James? Did they pray for James? I think it's likely that they did. And so we ask, well, why does God miraculously intervene for Peter and not for James? And that brings us back to our first point, which we already admitted we didn't have a clean answer for. I think the point is that the life of faith is a life of tension. So we pray to God, not because we always get what we want, but because we believe that he is infinitely powerful. And we learn to trust his answers, not because we always understand, but because we believe that he is infinitely loving and wise. Don't give up on God, Christian. Don't give up on God. Don't stop praying. If you're suffering or you've experienced some injustice, don't let the devil trick you into believing that God is not good. Instead, let Peter call you. Let James call you to look to the definitive act of God in human history, which is when Jesus Christ was nailed to a tree. And be reminded in your heart that God is indeed very good. So as we come to the Lord's table today and we join our voices, as the liturgy says, with all the company of heaven, including St. James and St. Peter, let the Lord feed your heart with the knowledge that it was out of the greatest suffering, the greatest injustice. It seemed like God was backed into a corner. But it was out of the greatest suffering that God took the suffering upon himself. He took the injustice and absorbed it into his own being and purchased our eternal salvation. Let us pray. These are the words of a collect from Holy Week. Almighty God, whose most dear son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified, mercifully grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. 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 Please stand.